Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Elderhood is said to be the third main developmental stage of human life, childhood being the first stage and adulthood the second. When trying to combat ageism, it's important to change perceptions about people in the elderhood stage. Today, my guest is Dr. Jenny Inker, Assistant Professor and Co-Director of the Assisted Living Administration Specialty Area at Virginia Commonwealth University. Jenny will talk about aging and how the concept has evolved over time, and she'll also talk about elderhood and how it is associated with retirement and ageism in our society. Finally, She'll discuss the complexity of the aging process and ways older adults can view their life's journeys with greater optimism. So welcome, Jenny, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Jenny, before we get into aging and all of these topics that I just mentioned, help us understand exactly what gerontology is. We're hearing much more about it nowadays, what it is, and then Explain exactly what the work of a gerontologist is. Sure. So gerontology is the holistic study of aging. Um, And when I say holistic, I mean from a biological, psychological, social, and spiritual perspective. So gerontologists study individuals as they are aging, but we also study aging populations. So how do societies change as populations grow older? And uh, we are distinct from geriatricians. Geriatricians are are clinical professionals who specialize in diseases uh, that particularly pertain to older individuals. So we're not a clinical profession. Um, We're not licensed as clinicians. But you can find gerontologists in many different occupations and work settings. So you can find us in healthcare settings. You can find us often in long-term care settings like assisted living or, or nursing homes or home care, um, in social care settings and human services like adult protective services, and also very often in what we call the aging network, which really describes an array of mostly nonprofit or not-for-profit organizations that exist to serve elders and their family members, um, agencies like Area Agencies on Aging, which you can find in each state. So one of the curious things about gerontology is that you typically will never uh, see a job description for a gerontologist, um, but you'll find us in many different occupations. And you mentioned a little bit about what gerontologists study, and I was wondering 
as the population is getting older. Have you seen that the study of gerontology has evolved? Yes, so gerontology is a relatively young discipline. It emerged only in the 1940s, and it sprang out of interests in other disciplines um, about aging. So it came out of biology and psychology, out of sociology and anthropology, to name just a few. And colleagues in these disciplines became really interested in aging and what that meant for individuals and societies. So um, gerontology... um, it does continue to evolve. It's a very interdisciplinary field, so it's a little bit hard to pin down. Um, but And I think that's the beauty of it, too, that it is so broad because we're looking at our bodies, our, our minds, both cognitively and emotionally, our social selves and our, our spirits or our souls. Um, and we do, I think, as a discipline, we wrestle with a number of really interesting dynamic tensions uh, things like uh, we, we our, our discipline is strongly focused on a life course perspective on aging, that uh, who we are in old age is really a result of who we've been uh, for our lives up until then. And so aging is a lifelong process. And therefore, should we study old people uh, or should we study people as they age throughout the course of their lives? I think that's an interesting dynamic tension in our discipline. Uh, how do we ensure that there's not an over-preoccupation with the aging of our bodies that might neglect other really fascinating changes and developments that occur psychologically, socially, and spiritually as we grow older? And then how do we overcome ageism? It's very prevalent in our society. And 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 in fact, ironically, even in our own profession of gerontology, and I think we'll probably delve quite a bit into ageism throughout the course of our discussion today, but suffice it to say for now that it's normed nearly to the point of invisibility, meaning that we often don't even recognize it when it occurs. And yes, you are absolutely right, because I want to ask some more questions about that. But I wanted to have you explain a little bit more about what I mentioned in the introduction about these three main developmental stages, uh, childhood and adulthood, and then, of course, uh, elderhood. Is that what they were always called? And so help us on that and then explain how were they defined over the years? Has that changed um, over time? Yeah, these are really interesting questions to me, I think, and to many people. And I think the first thing we need to realize is that uh, because we're human beings, we we socially construct our world. And so uh, many of the things around us that, you know, we, we believe in completely are social constructions um, and social constructions change over time. And so I think that is true about uh, stages of life. So uh, you know, for instance, let, let me let me say this, that uh, while we recognize childhood as a stage of life and we recognize adulthood as a stage of life, adolescence as a life stage, I would I would say that is pretty widely accepted now that it exists. But 100 years ago, not so much. 200 years ago, probably not at all. People were considered to transition from childhood directly into adulthood. And so the emergence of adolescence as a life stage um I think is a more recent phenomenon and based on uh, the way that our society has changed. And I think we also recognize now that adulthood um, is huge territory. Uh, adulthood um, is, is the transition into adulthood from adolescence is quite attenuated and gradual. 
we recognize that people are first young adults um, and have a lot to learn in order to fully become mature adults. Um, that a midlife adult is very different from a young adult who's just transitioned from adolescence. And that then begs the question, Cheryl, of what does it mean to be an older adult? You know, can we say that an adult in their 60s or their 80s has a huge amount in common with an adult in their 20s or 30s or 40s? And so when we begin to recognize this, I think we begin to see that adulthood is just this enormous territory that really deserves, I think, to be parsed um, more intentionally to understand how the experience of being an adult changes as we grow older. And I'm also wondering, Jenny, if the life expectancy of individuals, um, we certainly know that that has changed, but I'd like to hear more about what you have to say about that. And what the causes were, and I'm assuming that that had something to do with, say, the length of each of these various uh, stages and and even the existence of some of them. W- would you agree? Yeah, I, w- I would agree. And uh, life expectancy has grown tremendously, particularly over the past century. So it may surprise your listeners to learn that at the beginning of the 20th century, so at the beginning of the last century, the average life expectancy was actually under 50 years for most people. Um, And that had grown by the mid 20th century to around the mid 60s for men and around the low 70s for women. And currently it stands as an average at 76 years for men and 81 years for women. So I think you can hear in those statistics that life expectancy varies certainly by by sex, but also by age and by race and by socioeconomic status for which you know we could use income as a as a reasonable proxy. So let's look at it first in terms of age. So in general, the longer we live, the longer we can expect to live. So for example, life expectancy at birth in the year uh, 2016 was 78 years. But in 2016, if you make it to age 75, you could expect to live to around age 87. So if you already experience some longevity, you're likely to experience more. And obviously, there's a limit to lifespans. I think, you know, the the outer limit of a lifespan is said to be probably around 120 years. And that's although there's been an increase in centenarians, that is to say people who are aged 100 or older, it is still relatively unusual. If you look at life expectancy through the lens of sex, we will see that pretty much across the world, women tend to live longer than men. And that is for a combination of reasons, some of them biological, some of them social, and some really a strong interplay between these. Uh, For instance, it's been posited that uh, estrogen, a female hormone, is very protective of the heart, and so women tend to experience less heart disease. But there are also social behaviors implicated, too. Men have tended to smoke more than women um, and uh, to be greater risk takers. There's lots of, of uh, research uh, showing that, in general, men t- tend to take more risks than women. Of course, you can't say that is true of every individual. Um, but um, so you tend to see this difference between men and women, women living longer, although those gaps have closed a bit. If we look through the lens of race and ethnicity, um, there's some interesting findings here too. Hispanic men and women have the highest life expectancies um, at all ages. Black men 
um, at all ages have the lowest life expectancies. Black women have lower life expectancies than white women, but higher life expectancies than white men. And as age increases, these racial differences shrink, which is also interesting. So at, at advanced ages, they can even cross over. This is called the crossover effect, such that, for instance, a black woman who lives until age 85 is likely to live longer than a white woman of the same age. And the reason for these population level results, they're complex, they're likely multivariate, meaning lots of different reasons why they occur. But um, but certainly in that mix um, is socioeconomic status and ad- accumulated advantages or disadvantages based on what you were born into. It's also interesting, and I think somewhat alarming, that mortality data more recently has been moving in the wrong direction. And the reason why I say that is in the United States, um, life expectancy actually fell for three years in in a row uh, from 2014. And that's something we haven't seen since 1918. And it is a feature at the population level, especially among working class white people. And there are some indications that this is a trend linked to what has been called deaths of despair from suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol dependency. And you, you may have uh, listeners who are more interested in this. Case and Deaton wrote a book about this called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, which was published in 2020. Uh, but it is an alarming trend and one that we should be concerned about. Now, you've focused very much on the individuals them, themselves. Talk a bit about how aging has been viewed um, by other people and was it different, say, than in the past and how older adults were characterized in earlier times. Uh, Give us a little overview about that. Well, you know, it's hard to properly know. Um, I think we do have some sense of it uh, for some past eras. And I think, you know, before I say anything else, I think it's really easy to romanticize the past and to believe that elders were always more revered in earlier times. And the, the problem is just our modern times and, you know, that, that we, we've lost a reverence for elders that, that we always had before the modern era. And I think the reality is likely to be uh, much more mixed. Um, but I think there is some evidence that, um, you know, that we did hold elders in, in higher esteem. I think, you know, I often think about, you know, things like, uh, gray wigs in the 18th century. Gray wigs were very fashionable in the 18th century. And there certainly was a, part of that fashion statement was a desire to seem more mature and more wise. And, and that then conferred a higher status, gray hair being linked to um, elevated age. So, um, you know, we see things like that. But but we also know from history that uh, being old, could also mean that you were the subject of some derision and or pity. How did that become an, an issue then as far as uh, being a, a part of the family, the pity? Well, you know, there's a, I, I can't quote uh, the saying to you exactly, but there there is a saying that it was fairly common that to be, uh, to be, you know, to be old was a challenge and to be poor was a challenge, but to be both old and poor uh, was insupportable. It was just a burden that nobody could really carry. And so I think, you know, our views about uh, about growing older have probably always uh, been rather ambivalent, um, you know, recognizing that 
you know, bodies become frailer. That's a, that's an indisputable fact. Uh, you know, we will not live forever. Our physical bodies will not go on forever. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can see aging being this sort of complicated category where a lot of times people in powerful positions in society were older. They were elders, elders in the church or elders in the polity, um, but also experiencing these frailties. And, you know, so it's a very mixed bag as it is today. And I also was wondering, of course, now we bring it forward a little bit more about maybe retirement actually becoming a stage of life. We talked about the other three before, but has it now occurred that retirement is actually becoming a, a stage of life? And uh, what would you tell us there? Well, this is really interesting um, about life stages because I think retirement, I don't know that people would consciously frame it as a stage of life, but it's certainly been institutionalized um, as part of a life journey. And it's important to understand that this is actually a 20th century development. This is uh, very much uh, um, due to the advent of Social Security in 1935. Prior to 1935, if you did not independently have the means to support yourself or have a family who could support you, and then you would have needed to continue to work, whether you felt you could or not. And, um, and so in 1935, when the Social Security Administration was established and people could access, um, if you like, an old age pension from the state, then people were able to stop working. And, um, and I think it's, it, you know, so this is not something that uh, we've experienced until uh, very, very recently. And I was thinking not only Social Security in terms of finding a way to live, any comments about uh, how Medicare also became a part of retirement? Absolutely. And I, let's go back a little bit to this idea about how older adults were characterized in earlier times, because I think it lays some really interesting groundwork for, for these big entitlement programs like Medicare and Medicaid that 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 came much later that were established in 1965. So if we think back uh, to the earlier history of our country, um, you know, I mean, going way back, say 17th, 18th century, um, broadly, we can say that the Puritans uh, believed that our longevity, our lives and our deaths were in God's hands, not our hands. Um, and it was it was our uh it was our mission, if you like, to remain focused on hope and this afterlife. And we gradually see this changing um, over the course of the 19th to the 20th century. There began to develop a view that the, the length and the quality of our life were based on how self-disciplined we were, uh, that old age represented a kind of lack of discipline, that our bodies decayed and we became dependent if we were not sufficiently self-disciplined. And that kind of eventually led into this view in the late 19th century that we ought to attempt to master old age rather than to yield to it. And I, I rather think that's almost the beginning of our current war on aging. So by the early 20th century, what we have is this shift away from aging being seen as a mystery of the life cycle and becoming more the scientific and technical problem that needed a solution. And Alongside that, I think aging becomes quite medicalized, that we begin to develop a view that 
medicine and healthcare will be able to solve the problems of old age. Problems of old age is being seen as a lack of productivity, a disability, illness, and that. Um, so, so we begin to uh, uh, institutionalize these uh, these views, and so we get. We mentioned social security, uh, but by the 1960s, so 1965, we have uh, we have a real strong push for the growth of an aging industry. And because we have uh, the Medicare legislation is enacted, the Older Americans Act is enacted in 1965. And these are essentially based, they're public uh, policy programs based on seeing older people in society as a social problem that needs a fix, that needs professionals to help, that needs uh healthcare professionals that need social services professionals to fix it. And it's interesting that by 1968, a medical doctor called Dr. Robert Butler coins the term ageism. And he notices in his medical practice that there's a lot of discrimination against older people. So at the same time as we have these big and important entitlement programs emerging that, you know, Medicare is providing health insurance effectively for anyone age 65 and older. Um, at the same time, you have this really strong recognition that ageism is alive, alive, oh, in our healthcare system. And at the same time, we have the rise of these ideas of successful aging and what does it mean to age successfully and that starts to take shape around um, a view that aging successfully means that we will avoid decline will avoid disease um, and will remain socially engaged and well and and so uh, it's really, really quite interesting when you look at it from, at least to me anyway, I, I guess I'm quite interested in history. You see how these ideas have developed and you ha- and we do have these wonderful entitlement programs, but it's a little hard to escape the fact that they are very focused on solving what is seen as a societal problem. And would you also find, uh, Jenny, that there there's also like a disengagement from society uh, by by older adults as part of their retirement or their elderhood stage? Have you seen a lot of that too? Also, this is such an interesting question to me, Cheryl. So um, there have been, it has been posited that um, elders naturally disengage from society, that that's a natural and universal process. In fact, it, it even has a theory. In, in 1961, Elaine Cumming and William Henry uh, proposed the theory, the disengagement theory, and and they posited that there was this inevitable and rewarding process of a mutual withdrawal between an individual and the society, that as our age advanced, we would seek this withdrawal from society. It was normal, it was expected. And um, cessation of our work roles at retirement would be a really good illustration of that disengagement process that we become freed of the daily responsibilities of a job. And that permits us to pursue um, more voluntary and flexible activities. Um, Society benefits because uh, by removing older people from employment, we can replace them with younger people. And and really, the the disengagement theory was 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 widely criticized. And there's really never been any empirical evidence to support it in the sense that it does not appear 
that people uh, willingly disengage from society. I think some other things do occur, like we become much more selective as we grow older. It's called socio-emotional selectivity. We become much more selective about the people that we want to have in our lives and that we want to socialize with. Effectively, we we prune our social networks. It's very deliberate. Um, and we may withdraw from the workforce, although we see that changing tremendously too. The 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 this so-called traditional life course where you work and then retire um, has really changed a lot. People come in and out of work. They come in and out of retirement. And as regards to long-term care, you raise a really interesting question there. Most people wrongly believe that the majority of elders live in long-term care. If you ask most people what percentage of elders live in nursing homes, uh, they'll tell you anything from 20 to 50 or even 60, 70% of them, when in fact, it's probably around 5 to 6%. Um, and in assisted living, which is a, a le- less medicalized version of long-term care than nursing homes, uh, nobody knows for sure because it isn't federally regulated and so we don't have good data, but the, the, the thinking is that it's probably around 2%, under 3% of older adults live in assisted living. But we have this idea uh, that uh, people are segregated by age. So old people go off and live in uh, these long-term care institutions when, in fact, they don't. Most most people age in place at home within their families. Most care is done within families. The vast majority of elder care is done within families. And that often surprises people because they assume that we have segregated everybody. Um, and we really haven't. And long-term care is a really interesting setting because there are both advantages and disadvantages, as with anything, I guess, in life. Um, and some of the advantages um, it is said to confer is that it can be a lot easier to make friends in a long-term care setting when you are surrounded by people who may share very similar life experiences to you. Um, and there there can be disadvantages too. Some people, um, I think primarily because of ageism in our society, don't perceive themselves as old and so they don't want to go live with with uh, you know old people because they don't see themselves as old. Um, so I think you know, although we do have age segregation, if you like, that is what long-term care essentially is. It is age segregated housing. Uh, we also have a lot of age integrated um, solutions as well. And we're going to talk more about that in the second half of the program, but we're going to take a short break right now. We're talking with Dr. Jenny Inker, who is the Assistant Professor and Co-Director of Assisted Living Administration Specialty Area at Virginia Commonwealth University. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jenny Anker, Assistant Professor and Co-Director of the Assisted Living Administration Specialty Area at Virginia Commonwealth University. And we brought us up to the point now where we learned more about what's happened with older adults 
in years past. So, Jenny, I want to get into the actual discussion, the topic of today's program, the, the term elderhood. Where did that originate? Are there different uh, definitions? And why is it being studied more today? Well, I have to be honest, I don't think the term elderhood is actually in common use. We we use it extensively at VCU Gerontology, but I find it somewhat ironic. We've had some challenges attracting the attention of, of other gerontology researchers to the concept of elderhood, and we've actually experienced some significant pushback from colleagues who suggest that it's simply a device used to relabel old people. Uh, much in the much in the way that you know people might uh, say you know I'm a senior I'm not old. Uh, many of our colleagues think that simply calling people elders or speaking about elderhood is just a is just a relabeling. And um, but we actually see it differently at VCU Gerontology because we believe that focusing on elderhood helps us to parse those differences that we talked about earlier, Cheryl, between you know the different stages of adulthood, and so. Although I can't give you an accepted definition of elderhood, I can give you my definition of elderhood, and, and here it is. I would say that elderhood is a state of being in mature adulthood when we come fully into our own being and power, and we embrace our existential vulnerability as part of the meaning-making in our lives. And so it has a kind of inner focus in terms of making sense and making meaning out of our own lives. But it also has an outer focus. In other words, um, it tends to connect us to our community in a very generative way uh, through mentoring younger generations, uh, through sharing wisdom, um, through creating legacy. So um, in other words, it's about going inside ourselves, but also connecting outside ourselves. And I think it's important to say, too, that it looks different for everyone. Aging is a highly individuated experience. It is not the same for any two of us. And therefore, I can't define what your elderhood or my elderhood or anybody else's elderhood will be uh, because it could look different. Well, and to that point, maybe you could expand a little bit more on why people are living longer today, some of the advances um, in our society. And coupled with that, it would be interesting to hear of, in terms of your studies, has quality of life improved for older adults as they age because they're living longer now and they have all these different um, factors that help them to live longer? Well, certainly um, increasing prosperity as a society and you know improvements in public health, things like really good public sanitation, clean water, the development of powerful medicines like antibiotics. These these are the main reasons why we've had such increases in longevity. And and of course as I mentioned before, there there are groups uh, for whom that that you know isn't isn't the same. It isn't that longevity isn't as improved and there are some groups for which it appears to have reversed at least hopefully only in the short term. But in general, it's having a more prosperous society that has enabled us to have this great benefit of, of longevity. Well, and I was just wondering about the quality of life. I mean, we have all these factors, but, you know, we hear about this kind of generic quality of life. Uh, is it better? Are, are older adults, as they're getting older, are they avoiding 
you know, I'll speak for myself, more pain or discomfort sometimes or getting fatigued more easily. With all of these advances, you know, are you able to live through your 70s and even into your 80s and still be really happy and exuberant? Or is there still a degree of, you know, how long am I going to live? It's nice to hear that there is a longer life expectancy, but what does that mean? Is is that too a variation in terms of some people are happier than others? Well, for sure. Some people are always happier than others. And that's back to the point about uh, aging being highly individuated. So we can't say what old age uh, will be like because it's going to be different for each of us. What we can say at the population level is that in general, Older people appear to be at the top of what's called the happiness U-curve. So if you picture a curve shaped like a U, it has uh, two top parts and it has a dip in the middle. And that deep dip in the middle, I wonder who's in that deep dip in the middle. It isn't actually old people. Um, It is midlife people. The happiest people tend to be quite young or quite old. And that surprises a lot of people because I think uh, ageism is so deeply ingrained in our society that we naturally assume that growing older will be miserable, that it will be depressing, that it will be very difficult, and uh, therefore we don't have a lot to look forward to. And that those beliefs can create self-fulfilling prophecies. So there's some good research showing that people who have negative attitudes toward their own aging actually live on average about seven years less than people with positive attitudes to their own aging. People with negative attitudes to their own aging recover more slowly and less completely from serious conditions like heart attack or stroke than people who have positive attitudes to their own aging. So, you know, when we think about our mind and body connection, it's important for us to realize that our attitudes matter. And that is not to say, Cheryl, that we have to have a Pollyanna, unrealistic view that that aging is going to be only fun and wonderful things. Like the rest of life, there will be losses and there will be gains. There will be joys and there will be sorrows. And but But our outlook, believing that our life can be good is tremendously protective, tremendously, tremendously important. So we know, for instance, that um, it's called the positivity effect, that um, older people tend to see things in more positive terms, that it it, it tends to be very deliberate, um, a deliberate uh, choice to look at things through rose-colored glasses. And that may be linked to the development of some wisdom. It may be linked to a recognition that um, as time grows shorter, we want to make better use of it. Um, you know, it's a really probably a complicated bundle of factors. To your points about, um, or to your questions about, you know, can people live well and feel good There is a lot of research that shows that uh, people can live, older people often live with chronic health conditions and will continue to say that they really enjoy their lives, will continue to say that they feel themselves to be aging successfully. So uh, whereas the physician might uh, define successful aging as the absence of disease or disability, an elder living with disease or disability is much more apt to say, Uh, I am enjoying life. And yes, I have this disease or this disability, but I'm still enjoying my life. And so the the subjective 
view of successful aging is very different from the objective view. And I wanted to get into more now. You've been bringing up about ageism and talked about the research that's done in terms of the the stereotypes that are often connected with older adults and, and aging, particularly in our culture, maybe in other cultures as well, but maybe not, and, and especially the media when they talk about older adults and, and, and aging. Um, what does that often look like? Well, uh, ageism is really, really complex. It is both positive and negative. So when you mentioned stereotypes, Cheryl, we have both positive and negative stereotypes of elders. So let's think of some positive ones. Elders are wise. Elders are kind. Um, older women are grandmotherly. They're, um, you know, sweet little old ladies. Um so those are positive stereotypes. Um, and remember what a stereotype is. A stereotype is a generalization about a group that may have some kernels of truth in it that have been you know, blown way, way out of perspective. Um, we, we also know there are negative stereotypes. Elders are grumpy. Uh, they're stubborn. They can't learn. Um, you, we even have expressions in, in our common parlance. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. That would be a very common stereotype of elders. They, they're just incapable of doing any new learning. So what are we, what are we to make of these? Well, we know that not all old people are nice and kind. Some are kind, some are mean, just like human beings at any age. Um, we also know that not all Old people are wise. We even have an expression for that. There's no fool like an old fool. And so, you know, these stereotypes really, really mislead us, whether they're positive or they're negative. I would say the research shows that negative stereotypes vastly outweigh the positive ones, um, tremendously so. And they are really embedded in our culture. I think the probably the easiest way to make this plain to your listeners is um, to have people go down the birthday card aisle of the grocery store um, and have a look, read the cards and see how many are celebratory versus rude about aging, saying very mean, um, self-deprecatory things a lot of the times about what it is to be older. You know, you're as old as dirt, you're over the hill, uh, you're a figure of fun. Um, and, you know, we may think, oh, well, you know, these are funny. It's just humor. I mean, humor can be very healing and it does have a place. Uh, but I think that these, when we really think, of, if we think back to what I said about negative attitudes to our own aging being strongly implicated um, in our, you know, in our health and, 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 perhaps leading us away from better health, then we probably ought to be more worried about the amount of ageism that we experience in society than, than we currently are. We sort of accept it and we all have it. Um, ageism can be internalized as well as externalized. And what I mean by that is we can feel ageist things about ourselves. Uh, we can look in the mirror and think, you know, wow, I, I, I'm becoming ugly. I have wrinkles. I have gray hair. I should really try to cover those things up. And we are preyed upon by um, a, a multi-billion dollar uh, beauty industry, anti-aging industry that shames us for the changes that we naturally experience as we grow older. And the, this industry says to us, 
You are not as attractive as you could be. If you will only try to look younger, you will be more attractive. So you must fight your aging. And I would say that this is completely wrong. This is something we don't want to do. And I would say the opposite, that we want to embrace our elderhood. We want to be proud of the years that we've lived. We want to be proud of the things that we've learned. And do our bodies change? Absolutely. Um, of course they do. Um, young adults don't look the same way babies do. Um, we, we, we see that our bodies change, but there's nothing bad or ugly about the changes that our bodies undergo. It's just that we've fallen into this idea that that is so. And, and I think that recognizing that others profit off of our sense of shame and discomfort is a helpful way to begin to step back from that and ask if that's something that we truly want to participate in. Well, and to that that effect, what I'd like to do for the rest of the program is ask your help on how adults can look at growing older another way. Talk about the multidimensional uh, aspects of of, uh, older adults. Um, Help us understand how we can age and grow older differently. Yes, this is so important, Cheryl. I think that it begins with understanding that we are these multidimensional beings. And by that, I mean that we have a body. Our experience of the world is an embodied experience. We move through the world in a body that changes over time. But we also have, um, we have a mind. And that mind is both, um, has cognitive functions that enable us to think. It also has emotional functions. And we have a social presence and we have a spirituality. Whether or not we ha- practice a religion, everybody has a capability to experience uh, spirituality and transcendence. So first of all, seeing ourselves as this multidimensional being and recognizing that our body is but a part of our experience is a really important starting point. And then understanding that the sort of unexamined idea that we only experience development in childhood and young adulthood, understanding that that's incorrect is is the next best place to go and understanding that we actually experience development throughout our lives. And I would like to give you just a a brief example. So the trajectories move in multiple directions and let's take crystallized and fluid intelligence. So what's fluid intelligence? Fluid intelligence um, is our problem solving abilities, our ability to solve say math or logic problems and to do so pretty quickly. We're pretty good at that when we're younger in general. And as we grow older, our ability to do that slows down. There's been lots of studies showing that it takes us longer to solve those kinds of problems. Meanwhile, our crystallized intelligence is improving as we grow older. And anybody who likes uh, the the game Jeopardy will know that, that um, older people tend to have a much greater store of knowledge that would enable you to call out the answers on Jeopardy much more easily. And so we find that that Uh, increases right on through the 60s. We get better at integrative thought. Uh, We are better at recognizing patterns and seeing uh, things that have repeated themselves. And, you know, you see development of wisdom. Uh, Take take wisdom, for example, as an interesting one. You know, the question is often asked, well, can't young people be wise? And my answer is absolutely, young people can be wise. The advantage older people have is that they have a lot of accumulated life experience, so they have more raw material to work with. 
And if you have insight into those experiences, I think that's where wisdom develops from. I think simply the accumulation of life experiences doesn't give you wisdom if you have no insight into those experiences. Um, so, you know, you have these multiple tra trajectories. I, I think I mentioned socio-emotional selectivity earlier. Um, older people can experience tremendous liberation when you are liberated from the roles that were expected of you, then you can decide who's in your life and how you organize your life. Uh, that is much harder to do uh, when you're younger. Um, and for many, I, I won't say all, but for many older people, there appears to be a deepening of spirituality. Uh, certainly, a, there's a theory called gerotranscendence theory that posits that um, as people grow older, they tend to become more cosmically focused, um, better at inner reflection, less materialistic, um, and more able to, to almost do a form of time travel, um, you know, because we are all the ages we've ever been. So I'm currently 59, which means that I am 59, but I can remember being 49, 39, 19, 9, and I can time travel within my own life and my memories and really experience a lot of richness in terms of that, that inner journey. So I think older people have a lot of material to work with. Um, the library in our brains is really full. It's stuffed full. And that might slow us down and give us some tip of the tongue moments, but it also gives us great richness to draw on. From what I'm hearing you say, you haven't stopped developing. You're still developing um, in a dynamic way and, and multi-directional. There are different events and occurrences in your life and certain things that um, are happening that are different than, say, when you were younger. But I think from what I'm hearing you say is, is that there's still growth and it's not all about disease, decline, and death. That's absolutely right. But I think one of the challenges we have, though, is we're really afraid of the disease, decline, and death. I think many people would like to uh, pretend that that doesn't happen. Um, they want to cling to a younger version of themselves when that wasn't an issue. We even see this in our research, believe it or not, Cheryl, we even see that inclination amongst people in their 20s who will say, you know, I'm not as fit as I was when I was a kid. I've already noticed changes in my body and it makes me kind of anxious. You know, and I think um, we, we would do well to sort of to find ways to become more accepting of what I would call our, our existential vulnerability, which is a fancy way of saying that eventually we're going to die. And to be less afraid of that, I mean, it may be easy for me to sit here and say that, but, but to be able to integrate that into our lives can help us to live more fully and to understand that our journey as a human being is a unique journey and the purpose of our journey is to become more ourselves, to really explore ourselves. And you know, sometimes old age is called the role-less role uh, because nobody is expecting you to be anything in particular anymore. You've fulfilled your parenting roles. You've fulfilled your employee role. You've fulfilled your student role. And now you get to be you. And I think in this, there's tremendous liberation. And so rather than trying to cling to youth and deny that we're older or that we're old, I think there's 
just such a liberation in embracing our elderhood and saying, I'm here, I'm here now, and life is what I make of it. And do you think it's possible, Jenny, for uh, aging adults to avoid those stereotypes that are often assigned to older people? Yes, I do. Um, and I think that it requires um, an intentionality. It, re- it requires an understanding, first of all, that those stereotypes exist. Um, and I think once you start to see them, then you can't unsee them anymore. And I think recognizing that we've all internalized some ageism um, is an important first step because then we can just recognize that we all contend with it and we can be compassionate towards ourselves and we can be compassionate towards others. We can uh, console ourselves and others and educate other people using humor and using compassion and pushing back when we need to. And I would say that I would love to see us all fall less and less into the trap that I would call relational ageism, meaning where we use ageism um, self-referentially in order to bond socially with another person. So for example, a really common example of relational ageism would be if I were to misplace my car keys and say, oh, I just had a senior moment you know, I'm 59. Oh, I must be losing it. And, you know, when somebody else hears me and kind of chuckles or giggles, that's actually, uh, we're really creating and perpetuating ageism in that social encounter. How would it be, Cheryl, if I just said when I misplaced my car keys, which unfortunately does happen, why don't I just say, you know, it's so annoying when I misplace my keys. I must have other important things on my mind today. Oh, well, you know, I'll find them in a minute. And normalize, right? We we wouldn't we don't say when we're twenty and forget something that we're falling apart. Uh, but I think our fear leads us uh, to say things like that when we're older. And I think we don't need to do that. And it doesn't really help us to do that. So I'd like to see us um, be more compassionate with ourselves and other people. And that kind of leads me into my next question about uh, new traits that we can adopt. Uh, and older adults can adopt, and not just older adults, but all older adults, as they anticipate uh, moving into elderhood. Is is that possible for adults who are maybe not uh, elders? Because again, it's very fluid as to what how the what the difference is between adulthood and elderhood. But I'm I'm wondering about not only the new traits that can help one imagine their own elderhood. But finally, to actually achieve life satisfaction, that that you're enjoying life rather than dreading getting up in the morning and, and um, waiting to die, so to speak. It's kind of dramatic. But um, what would you tell us? Well, I think that um, going back to one of my earlier points that uh, we are we are aging the entirety of our lives. We are aging from the moment of conception. We're growing and we're aging. And our who we are in old age is something that was being constructed all along throughout our lives. And so it's never too early to start thinking about these things. I, I would encourage, and we teach, we our students, um, our Master of Science and Gerontology students are of all ages, from their 20s through to their 70s. Um, we encourage them all at all ages to be thinking about this. And I would encourage all of your listeners to be thinking about this 
you know, who am I and who do I want to be? And I think in order to do that, my main piece of advice, if I have one piece of advice for myself as well as for anybody else, is to slow down and to embrace slowness. You know, we fear looking slow or sounding slow because our society wants us to move so quickly. But when we slow down, Cheryl, we create space in our day and the time to simply be rather than always doing, always being busy. And I think that what people may find when they allow that space within them and around them to expand is that there is so much in the world to enjoy despite the challenges, despite the sorrows. The world is a beautiful place full of abundance and, it, and it's there for us simply to notice. Notice that it's there. And I think that uh, we all have access to that, but it does require us to slow down and notice. Well, that's a, a good way to, to end this uh, interview. And I really want to thank Dr. Jenny Inker, Assistant Professor and Co-Director of Assisted Living Administration Specialty Area at Virginia Commonwealth University. Thank you, Jenny, for joining me today. And to learn about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com, and there you can access all the Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as link into Apple and Spotify podcasts. They are all uh, listed on the website. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and to learn more about that company, visit inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you. For listening to Aging Matters today. And by the way, we need to acknowledge that today is the last program of Aging Matters for 2021. And having said that, I want to wish all of you a very happy new year and much good health and happiness in the year 2022. And also, especially after listening to this broadcast today, remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.